In one of the many outstanding contributions to the history of modern Germany, the provost of this college, uh, Sir Richard Evans, recalls the important role that Max Weber's thought had for post-war German historians. And it's with that uh, leading social theorist that I begin uh, this reading about the relationship of law, or the rule of law in grander language, with economic progress. For one of the themes of Weber's Wirtschaft und Gesellschaft, written in the early 20th century, was the mutual dependence of the rational methods and institutions of modern Western law and the economic development of Europe and the United States. But in advancing that account, Weber had a problem. How could he explain capitalist development in Britain against the backdrop of the non-rational maze, which is the common law? In a number of contradictory passages, Weber uh, attempted to maintain his thesis with two arguments. First, the unhelpfully vague assertion that English judges were active in the service of capitalist private interests. And secondly, the positive economic effects of the administration of justice being concentrated centrally in London and to the exclusion of non-property interests. If he developed the second point further, Weber could have explored how English contract law has been forged largely in the context of shipping, insurance, and other commercial disputes, rather than in county court uh, tenant, uh, landlord and tenant law and consumer transactions. But given the peculiarities of the English, Weber at times seems to have moderated his argument about the law economy relationship, as you'll see from the last sentence on the slide. Let me jump to the end of the last century and to possibly the most famous article in the field of finance entitled Legal Determinants of External Finance. That was published in the Journal of Finance in 1997. Unlike Weber's quiet contemplation in his study of the problems of the law economy relationship, this and the subsequent legal origins literature has involved number crunching on a grand scale. In the initial 1997 study, data was gathered from 49 countries to match, to match the standard of investor protection measured by the character of legal rules and the quality of law enforcement to the development of capital markets. A further article in 1998 with data from the same 49 countries found that common law countries generally had the strongest and French civil law countries the weakest legal protections for investors. Other studies followed. Reviewing the position in 2013, three of the original authors reached a number of conclusions. In brief, that differences in legal rules matter for economic and social outcomes. And in particular, and hence the tag legal origins, the conclusion that the market supporting common law system works better than the policy implementing civil law system 
as far as positive economic consequences are concerned. As you can imagine, the conclusions of the Legal Origins School have been fiercely contested, not least the conclusion that common law countries are more conducive to economic and financial development than others. There's not the time to canvass the views of the opposing school, but criticisms have been made about the methodology of the Legal Origins School and the Common Law Civil Law Division being too simplistic. It's also said that the school's overall conclusions are belied by uh, Asian developments. Best exemplified by China is a model where economic boom has occurred in the absence of many rule of law features, including strong and independent courts. Moreover, in common law India, the judiciary has not played a significant role in adapting the substantive, rule, uh, substantive law to the change needs of a market economy. But in the presence here tonight of the Singapore Attorney General and uh, a senior partner of one of Singapore's leading law firms, um, I should acknowledge that their country's experience supports the legal origins thesis, uh, independent, commercially oriented courts going hand in hand with economic progress. For several decades, the World Bank has advanced the link between the rule of law and economic progress in its prescriptions for developing and emerging economies. Quote, justice and the rule of law, it states on the website, are central to the bank's core agenda of ending extreme poverty and promoting shared prosperity, uh, end of quote. The World Bank's working definition includes laws which are clear, available, stable, and protective of rights, the efficient and fair enactment and application of those laws, and the administration of justice by competent, ethical, and independent officials. In its 2017 World Development Report, the bank sought to collect together its accumulated wisdom on the subject and its wider point about the positive impact of good governance. The report drew on the bank's extensive experience in many countries to support the conclusions there on the slide that the rule of law is needed for a country to realize its full social and economic potential. So here we have three approaches to analyzing the law economy link. Weber's library contemplation, the number crunchy of the legal origin school, and the World Bank's extensive experience in developing and emerging economies. My exploration of the link between law and economic development is different. What I'm seeking to do is to use history, in my case, the history of English commercial law and economic development since the first part of the 19th century. In broad outline, I'm examining transactional law and delving into business and banking archives to determine, to determine whether the law has been supportive of commercial activities and has been perceived as such by the commercial community. What I, um, uh, what I uh, uh, am trying to do in the remainder of this lecture is to give you a flavour of the larger study. I'm, I'm, I'll begin with how uh, English judges in their lawmaking 
have consciously attempted to facilitate commercial activity. I'll then uh, give you five examples uh, of uh, how institutional and commercial innovation uh, has occurred during my period. And then I'll briefly explore the law's role in support of those innovations. Finally, I'll try to extract some broader themes from the study so far. So let me begin with three uh, philosophical underpinning, underpinnings of English uh, commercial law. The uh, first is uh, freedom of contract. Um, the rapid uh, development of contract doctrine to accommodate the changing economy in, the 19th, in 19th century England was the subject of Professor Patrick Teer's uh, magisterial account, The Rise and Fall of Freedom of Contract. That was published in 1979. And Atiyah's story is one of the replacement after 1800 of notions of fairness and equality of exchange uh, by ideas of contract based on the expressed will of the parties and liability grounded on promises. Whether the transformation is as stark as Atiyah suggests, there can be little doubt that, as he contends, 19th century contract law, and I quote him, was closely related to the ideas of the political economists and to the rise of the market economy. Atiyah was writing in the 1970s, and he was writing his book when we were uh, both colleagues at the University of Warwick. I hasten to add that he was the professor and I was a junior lecturer. Um, but his argument about the fall of contract um, just as uh, his argument about 19th century judges being influenced by the political economy of their times um, was influenced by what he saw around him. There was the rise of the uh, mixed economy, the corporatism of the 1970s, and the intrusion into free contracting of legislation such as the Consumer Credit Act of 1974. In fact, contrary to any fall the history of contract doctrine in the commercial sphere has always been one that there were few limitations placed on how parties might contract and of courts upholding bargains. And uh, there we have a, um, typical, uh, the typical sentiment uh, expressed by uh, Lord Collins that uh, party autonomy is at the heart of English uh, commercial law. The second philosophical underpinning of English commercial law uh, is certainty. Um, this has sometimes been so emphatically stated that outcome is secondary, as with the words of Lord Mansfield in 1774 on the top part of the slide. Uh, it's more uh, important that the rule should be certain than whether the rule is established one way or the other. He then goes on in a part of the extract which uh, is not there, because uh, those in trade then know what ground to go upon. Um, as you uh, can see, Lord Bingham, uh, one of the uh, one of Gray's Inn's most eminent members uh, in uh, in the uh, in recent times, approved this observation in a passage in his dissent in the Starsin in two thousand three adding the gloss uh, about uh, where uh, uh, an issue has been the subject of repeated litigation uh, over the years. 
Uh, in uh, another case, uh, Lord Mansfield spe spelled out the advantages of certainty as he saw them. Quote, the daily negotiations of property of merchants ought not to depend upon subtleties and niceties, but upon rules easily learned and easily retained because they are dictates of common sense drawn from the truth of the case. The third principle uh, of English commercial law uh, is that uh, equitable doctrines should be kept at bay. Some equitable doctrines, such as undue influence, unconscionability, and relief against forfeiture, require uh, fair dealing. Um, uh, Lord Atkin, uh, another of uh, Gray's Inn's great uh, 20th century judges, uh, said this in uh, Reweight uh, when he was uh, dealing with equitable uh, rights inconsistent with the uh, Sale of Goods Act. They couldn't survive, he said. Uh, that was a case where he refused um, specific performance, an equitable remedy, against an insolvent seller in relation to the sub-sale of an unascertained part of a cargo of wheat not yet shipped. Uh, but perhaps a uh, better illustration of the attitude of English commercial law to equitable doctrines is provided by the uh, scrap trade, uh, the name of a case, in 90, and name of ship, in 1983, when the House of Lords refused to protect a charterer um, through equi the equitable doctrine of relief against forfeiture. Uh, there, on a rising market for freight, an owner withdrew the vessel just a couple of days after the charterer had failed to pay monthly hire in advance. The House of Lords rejected the argument that the strict application of the withdrawal clause led to capriciousness. The possibility that ship owners might snatch the opportunity to withdraw ships was well known in the world of shipping, as was the possibility of inserting a clause to prevent such an occurrence. In justification, Lord Diplock, quoting um, Lord Justice Robert Goff in the Court of Appeals, said that it may be commercially desirable for action to be taken by the owner without delay. So freedom of contract, the need for certainty for commercial contracting, and confining equities uh, reach are three of the key underlying uh, principles of English commercial law. Each, as we've seen, is based expressly on the perceived needs of the commercial community. And each is regarded uh, as essential if markets are to operate smoothly and efficiently and commercial parties uh, are to achieve their aims. Let me now sketch um, five examples where 19th and 20th century infrastructure contributed to commercial and financial innovation and to the law's role in this. The first example is the banker's clearinghouse, which facilitated payment by establishing a central payment system for the exchange and settlement of bills of exchange and checks. In 1770, a clearing system was formalized in the city of London when clerks from the different private banks met at the Five Bells, a tavern in Lombard Street. The first banker's clearinghouse was built in Lombard Street in 1833, initially with bilateral netting, but from 1841 with multilateral netting. 
1854 settlement in cash was replaced by settlement across the accounts of the uh, uh, across the accounts the banks held at the Bank of England. And in, in fact, the important role of the Bank of England uh, in uh, the payment system has continued since that time. In 1854, James Grant described the clearinghouse in his book on banking law uh, as you can see on the slide. Very simple in design, but avoiding the need for the banks to send their clerks during the day with their customers' bills of exchange and checks to other banks where they were payable. For the mathematically inclined, with N participants in a clearing, the maximum number of transactions with bilateral netting is N by N minus 1 over 2, and is N with multilateral netting. In other words, a very considerable reduction of the number of transactions which have to take place. In other words, as a result of netting between parties, clearing improves efficiency by reducing the number of payments and at the same time the amount of money a party needs to have ready to settle its obligations. Grant explained that in the last sentence of the uh, quotation there on the slide. Balances are then struck from all accounts each clerk has only to settle in cash with two or three others, and thus, by means of comparatively small sums in money, the balances are immediately paid. The courts quickly became familiar with the operation of the clearinghouse. As early as 1811, um, Lord Ellenborough held that, the, um, that a bill of exchange uh, presented through a clearinghouse was sufficient although the acceptance on it indicated that it would be paid at the bank's address in the City of London. In the first of a number of cases, the Court of Common Pleas held in 1843 that acting in accordance with the practices of a clearinghouse was the reasonable course for bankers to take and one the law would protect. By the end of the 19th century, the courts were giving effect to the rules of the clearinghouse and pinning liability on a bank failing to comply with them. So the law was in full support of this beneficial uh, financial uh, infrastructure. A second example endorsing the workings of a City of London uh, institution concerns the London discount houses, the institutional basis of the money market until the absorption uh, of the discount houses into other financial institutions after Big Bang in the 1980s. As many of you will know, the bill on London was central uh, to financing international trade. The merchant banks, the acceptance houses, accepted in the legal sense bills of exchange drawn, for example, in favor of British exporters, that's the sample bill on the slide, but then sold or discounted them in the market. Discounting meant that the exporter, in our case, uh, received immediate payment for its goods before the 60 days when payment under the bill was due. Payment was at a discount um, to, face, uh, to the face value to take into account early payment. The bill brokers, later discount houses, funded themselves by short-term deposits from banks and by selling uh, rediscounting bills on their own account to commercial banks and the Bank of England. Later, the discount houses bought government bonds and uh, with time that became the avenue for uh, the conduct of monetary policy. 
Now, the law placed no obstacles in the way of discounting of bills of exchange. Onward sale was part of the fabric of bills of exchange law from the 18th century with refined provisions for the endorsement of bills and the hierarchy of liability. But the discount market in London came into sharp focus with the collapse of the largest discount house uh, over on Gurney & Co. in May 1864. What led to the immediate crisis was a judgment on the 8th of May, 1860, I said 64, I meant 66, uh, which held that over on Gurney uh, could not sue the acceptor uh, of the bills of exchange they held because the bills were ultra-virus the issue. This has resonance with uh, a case in 1992, uh, Hazel and Hammersmith and Fulham, London Borough Council, and uh, cases which followed where courts have held that derivative contracts are void as being beyond or ultra-virus a local or public authority's powers. Well, following that 1866 judgment, there was a run over on Gurney. On the 9th of May, it applied unsuccessfully to the Bank of England for assistance. Despite its uh, prominence and position in the market, it was not too big to fail. Panic ensued. The Bank of England used its reserves to support other discount houses and the banks, and confidence was restored, albeit that some 200 institutions collapsed. What came out of over on Gurney, uh, the crisis, was the publication in 1873 by Walter Badgett, then editor of The Economist, of his famous Lombard Street, A Description of the Money Market. That book advanced the case that the Bank of England should act as a lender of last resort in a crisis. And that has become a fundamental principle of central banking and was what the bank uh, eventually did in the 2007-2008 financial crisis. What also came out in the wash in litigation over, over on Gurney's liquidation was its slack and risky practices in bill discounting and other ventures. But the practices of the London uh, money market emerged unscathed. And in this uh, case I've mentioned there, uh, Henry Fox, Walker & Co., the court recognised uh, uh, recognize an invariable practice of bill brokers in the London market not to endorse the bills they discounted but to give a general guarantee. My third example of law supporting financial infrastructure concerns the growth of the uh, futures market. I've described this at some length previously. The beginnings with the arrival contracts in the Liverpool cotton trade, uh, expertly described, uh, incidentally, by a member of Gray's Inn, Professor Brian Simpson. The insertion of clauses for future dealings in contracts drawn up by the Commodity Trade Associations and the establishment with German expertise of the London Produce Clearinghouse, now LCH, which you can see from the uh, extract on uh, the slide, offers clearing services for a whole range of exotic financial products. As with my first two examples, the courts performed a supportive and legitimizing role, in this case enforcing the rules of commodities exchanges and clearinghouses uh, as regards, for example, margin payments and also shielding futures dealings from the gaming laws. My fourth and fifth examples are directed at commercial techniques rather than institutions. These days, asset finance involves uh, finance leasing, higher purchase, sale and lease back and so on. It not sale is regularly used by businesses 
who need equipment, whether it's photocopiers, forklift, truss, forklift trucks, manufacturing plant, motor vehicles, or aircraft. But the finance lease developed in England in the uh, 19th century with the humble railway wagon. You can see on the slide that the North Central uh, Wagon Company called themselves financiers and offered wagons on hire. The background was that the amount of capital required and the fluctuating demand for wagons meant that the railway companies decided not to purchase wagons themselves, but to leave it in the main to those wanting to transport goods to furnish their own wagons. Railway wagons were manufactured by wagon companies like North Central. Coupled with the uh, final sale of wagons under what was called deferred purchase terms, later known as high purchase, businesses obtained their wagons on credit. Deferred purchase was especially attractive to less well-capitalized businesses such as some of the smaller collieries. There were legal risks associated with the technique which reached the courts in the late 19th century. The first concerned the distinction between credit, conditional sale on the one hand, and deferred or hire purchase on the other. If the hire of wagons with the option to purchase was in reality a credit or conditional sale, the hire companies might not have a property claim in the event, in the event of the hire's insolvency. It might also be that the hirer could give good title to third parties. That was a major risk with hire purchase, which was used increasingly from the 1860s um, for the sale of, or, or for the supply of uh, pianos, or for the marketing, let's say, of pianos, furniture, and sewing machines to members of the middle and skilled working classes. After a slight hiccup, the courts helpfully characterized hire purchase not as sale, but as hire coupled with an option, albeit not an obligation to purchase and therefore hire companies could seize back goods in the event of a hire's insolvency or a fraudulent purported onward sale on its part. Another problem arose with sale and leaseback, where a business sold property to raise money and then hired it back for continued use. The issue arose in 1886 in what was recognised as a test case, which I don't seem to have on the slide. Um, uh, and uh, uh, there, uh, the judge at first instance uh, held that um, it constituted an unregistered bill of sale and therefore was void. Incidentally, the judge was um, Vice-Chancellor Bacon, uh, who probably had poor judgment. He'd actually been called at Gray's, but then went on to be treasurer at Lincoln's Inn. Um, but on appeal, uh, he was held to be wrong and the transaction uh, was uh, held not to uh, be a registrable bill of sale. My final example uh, concerns the uh, Euro markets, which developed in London um, from the 1960s. The story has been told a number of times, including in Neil Ferguson's excellent biography of Sigmund uh, Warburg. Essentially, there was a surplus of dollars outside the United States, um, the City of London became the centre for their deposit and recycling. New York might have uh, assumed that role, but US regulation discouraged it. Uh, in Ferguson's account, the development of the Eurobond market was a, quote, largely spontaneous result of innovation by private sector actors with some help from Britain's permissive monetary authorities, end of quote. 
The first Euro bond issue was in 1963 for the Italian Autostrada. The solicitors were Allen and Overy, and they had a number, uh, and they had to overcome a number of legal issues, such as UK controls on capital issues and the registration requirements uh, under the UK, uh, under the uh, company's legislation for bonds being offered to the public. When the Euro market uh, was finally considered by the courts almost a quarter of a century later, its insulation from uh, US controls was upheld in a case called Libyan Arab Foreign Bank and Bankers Trust. That was the uh, first big banking case I saw at close quarters. And uh, Sir William Blair, who um, is sitting in the front here, uh, uh, involved me in it, and uh, I belatedly thank him for doing so. I learned a lot of banking law uh, in the process. So what lessons can we draw from these five examples in terms of this larger topic, the relationship of law and economy? One feature was that English commercial law enabled financial institutions and trade associations to draw rules and standard contracts to their own design. In a separate study, I've described how uh, in the uh, 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 19th century uh, and uh, 20th century, the London Corn Trade Association, now GAFTA, drafted its contracts to exclude the ordinary rules of, so of sales law. Freedom of contract was not the um, answer to every problem. Uh, as we've seen, it was not possible to overcome the ultra-virus rule through contract, but in many cases, freedom of contract enabled the commercial community to draft around a problem. In Cook and uh, Eselby in 1887, the House of Lords applied ordinary agency principles to dealings between brokers on the uh, Liverpool Cotton Exchange. That caused uh, great consternation. But the problem was solved by the market redrafting the contract. And you can see this in the comments of a leading broker uh, quoted in the slide. Um, I brought it before our association and I told them if the thing was going on, no man would dare trade under those systems. The consequence was that the committee was formed and a new contract was made out. I should highlight two features of this private lawmaking. First, it was often innovative in addressing commercial need. Secondly, it was generally by the trade itself, uh, so that lawyers were only occasionally involved. And thirdly, dispute resolution was informal, with arbitration by members of the relevant trade association, uh, disputes only occasionally uh, going to uh, going to the court and after uh, the 1890s going to the commercial court. A second feature of this relationship between law and economy was that there what, uh, can be called the normative force of commercial practice. The simplest uh, illustration uh, of that is, what, uh, is how a commercial custom and trade usage could be used to interpret commercial contracts and to add terms to contracts. Particular ports and markets were not infrequently held to be the repository of such customs and usages. Thus, in the port of Liverpool, which is there on the slide, there was a custom that with cargoes of timber from the Baltic, lay time commenced at the ship's mooring at the discharge quay, not at the earlier point of its arrival at the dock. And there was a case in 
1876, where the court recognized that custom. As I've already mentioned, in the case of Ree Fox, Walker & Co., the court accepted the custom of bill brokers uh, in the City of London. A second aspect of this uh, point is what Sir Roy Good uh, has described as a market practice being able to pull itself up by its own legal bootstraps. This is not so much an application um, or a rule about commercial custom and usage, but more the point I made earlier about the courts legitimizing an institution, market, or commercial way of dealing. That uh, leads to a third feature of the relationship, uh, that English judges have generally been supportive of commerce and, and have attempted to reach uh, commercially helpful results. Um, on the uh, slide there, there are just two examples. Um, the House of Lords abandoned the breach date conversion rule in the Miliangos case in 1976, and Lord Denny, on his account, created the Moravia injunction. Um, of course, there'll sometimes be disagreement between judges as to what, for example, is a commercially uh, sensible uh, interpretation uh, of a contract. Uh, in the uh, 1920s, and I had him there on the previous slide, uh, Lord Justice Scrutton famously lamented that the law was increasingly uh, out of kilter uh, with our commercial practice. But for the purposes of this lecture, the generalisation uh, will suffice. Uh, generally speaking, uh, English judges uh, were uh, supportive uh, of commercial activity. So let me uh, conclude. Um, my reading of the history of English commercial law over the last 200 years lends support to a link between uh, law and eco economic progress. The banks, the commodities, uh, and uh, financial markets, Lloyd's Insurance, the Baltic Exchange, and so on, were all able to function against the backdrop of a generally favorable and supportive law and a legal profession on tap of a flexible and pragmatic uh, mind in the main to smooth the wrinkles. Uh, we have encountered uh, various examples of commercial innovation, generally given the stamp, the stamp of legal approval. If not, there was the ready uh, ability um, uh, to return to a favoured position through free contracting. Uh, institutionally, uh, there was a developed uh, system of uh, arbitration to deal with uh, disputes, and the commercial court was designed to provide an expert forum um, to, um, uh, settle, to ultimately to settle uh, those disputes. And that attempt to accommodate commercial need uh, continues to the present day uh, with the for example, the creation in 2015 of the financial list. But uh, if ever we lawyers um, uh, think that we are in the vanguard facilitating economic progress, it takes uh, only a minute to reflect on developments with a much more fundamental impact. Modern accounting practices, the telegraph and the telephone, the steamship and the airplane, electricity and computing. I could go on.
Thank you very much for your attention.